Welcome back to Red Star Radio. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined again by our previous guest, Leila Mashoi. We are looking at a series of issues related to the pandemic response of various governments around the world from 2020 to present day. The reason why we're doing this series of programs is that both of us agreed that there was a distinct lack of Marxist analysis going into depth of the political economy and the politics of the COVID outbreak and the political response to it. So this is going to be the first in what will be a series of programs looking specifically into that. In this week's episode, we're looking at the lockdowns, the end of lockdowns, making some predictions about the immediate future, and also going into depth as to why the Democratic Party in the United States was so keen to utilize the pandemic and the lockdowns as a means of destabilizing and disposing of the presidency of Donald Trump. As always, if you've liked what you've heard here, be sure to like, share and subscribe, and I hope you enjoy the program. But before we get into the episode, here are a few inspiring words from the leaders of the free world. Hi, perhaps you recognize me. It's your favorite president. We are all still living in an emergency. Poverty is sexist. You grind up the scales of a pangolin, you will somehow become more uh, potent. After I'd recorded the previous episode I did with Layla, uh, we spoke over Twitter and decided that there was a distinct lack of serious analysis being done of the the COVID phenomenon and its associated economic and political trends that both produce the governmental and ruling class response to it and have shaped it over the course of 2020 and are shaping it of course still as we roll into the new year and almost nobody on the the left either the social democratic left what remains of it or the so-called revolutionary left is actually dealing with the capitalist realities that are producing the current situation so we decided to take it upon ourselves to do a series of programs where we would investigate the economic and political factors that are shaping this current crisis or pandemic or whatever you like to call it and how we should look at that because one of the reasons I became round to looking at this with a degree of um, skepticism was because I felt like my initial reaction which was just to assume that the bourgeoisie wouldn't want an interruption in the productive process wouldn't want to lose money by keeping people at home, etc. And therefore, the lockdowns would be against their interests. As I researched it further and as things dragged on and on, it became obvious that not only was there a certain section of the bourgeoisie that was profiting as high as ever, but also the lockdown themselves was something uh, illusory in terms of their being more of a public relations stunt and an exercise in perception management than they were seriously about public health, with many workers continuing to go out to offices and factories or any side of production every single day, and and as big as or a slightly smaller number, working from home, working remotely, or going into the office only two or three times a week. Essentially, the conclusion that I reached was that, well, production was continuing and that it was certain sections of the economy were taking a hammering, but a lot of the rest of it had only had a brief interruption and then was springing back to normal again. So, again, I found that this wasn't something that was being discussed, so 
I was very happy to actually find that uh, there was at least one other person in the world that agreed with me uh, when I was doing the recording with Layla the other day, which is why we're back here doing this now. But so uh, that's where I'm coming from on this, uh, coming from a position where I had investigated it and interrogated my own previous position and found my own previous position to be wanting. And I did a YouTube video on that a while ago. But Layla, let's go to you. Um, what was your process to reaching the point of questioning the the bourgeoisie's narrative on COVID? Yeah, well, actually, um, your video was a big part of me kind of exploring my intuitions about it. I it was seeing a lot of the restrictions and a lot of them just weren't making sense. They seemed very disproportionate. Um, you know, the, the what I was particularly bothered by were, were the intrusions on I guess what could could be said, for lack of a better word, civil liberties. Um, and in a way that didn't, you know, just intuitively didn't make sense to me. Like, I didn't understand why, for instance, in Toronto, uh, like benches were now illegal to sit on um, and how that was really helping to prevent the spread of COVID-19. So then as I started looking into it, um, I, I, I think that what really changed my mind is looking at um, the health impacts overall of the lockdowns. So trying to understand these lockdowns in term, like trying to understand the health impacts of these lockdowns through a totality and understanding uh, and, and trying to grasp um, like all of the harms and benefits of these lockdowns. So the bourgeoisie has always um, just looked at these lockdowns as a way of preventing a specific harm, which is contracting the virus of COVID-19. But as I started looking more and more into it, um, I started realizing that there's so many other um, harms and you know so that come with you know socially isolating people for months on end um, and then also like I you know looking at the actual data of COVID-19 it started becoming apparent to me that this was far less dangerous and deadly just on a kind of raw physical health basis than what was being propagandized by most of the doctors and epidemiologists that are platformed um, in my country and in most countries um, and but what really got me was the same as you. I, I was still though on the position that well, if we did a real lockdown do, though, then you know we could take care of this disease, get it, get it, get it done, and then we could go back to normal. So that would be the least harmful approach. But what really was a linchpin for me was thinking about what a quote unquote real lockdown would look like, and I realized that it would simply be impossible under capitalism. That would just never happen. Like that we would stop production, keep people at home for weeks on end, you know, um, deliver their groceries, you know, do all, the, all these different things to immobilize people so that the disease um, wouldn't spread. At this point, in most, capital, in, mostly, in most advanced capitalist countries, it would be impossible at this point because the disease is so widespread. So, yeah, so then I was like, well... If it's impossible to stop this disease with a quote-unquote real lockdown, and if these lockdowns are creating a whole host of other harms that very well may negate any of the gains that we're making through preventing the spread of COVID-19, then what is the real reason why these lockdowns are happening? And that's when I, that's, that's really when I started questioning the whole lockdown narrative, narrative and, and really started investigating, investigating the political economy behind this whole situation. And yeah, so now I'm still, now I'm like, my mind is going towards more, like it, it, I, I had been really consumed by looking at the um, health 
and science information behind COVID-19. But now I'm really looking at more the political and the economic situation that we're in right now and trying to draw conclusions from that. And I think that's what this conversation will be good to do. Yeah, exactly. And the the thing that I think both of us agreed upon, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that for many people, um, and I've done this myself in the past, so it's a mistake that I've made, there's always an assumption that the the limits of there there is a limit to how class power asserts itself in uh, everyday situations. And what I mean by that is, uh, you would assume I have assumed in the past that oh well, certainly the the capitalist class wouldn't want um, a mass outbreak of a disease, and therefore uh, and some the response would be conditioned by the fact that they wouldn't want uh, a mass outbreak to disturb production. But not only and the case we're going to be making is that the production process hasn't been disturbed all that much, but also the fact is that the very science itself, the very science that is presented to us as neutral, value-free, reached through a process which is not subject to, uh, certainly not subject to class forces or external political forces, that somehow that that is something which is sacrosanct, when in actual fact, the scientific method under capitalism is as limited as any other method of production and distorted by uh, capitalism as any other area of economic activity is, because science fundamentally is an area of economic activity. And this isn't to say that everything that is presented is completely false or has no basis in truth, but it is filtered through the existing framework of class relations and therefore what reaches us mm-hmm. uh, through the news or through any other source of uh, information controlled by the capitalist class is going to be reflective of that perspective also reflective of the fact that many of the people who hold the senior research positions in these scientific entities be it the the big pharmaceutical companies or the major universities and research institutions they are all of a certain class themselves. So just as we would analyse and critique the capitalist media for being something which is conditioned by the capitalist productive methods and capitalist class interests and the people within it reflecting their own class interests as very highly paid members of the petty bourgeoisie or maybe even in the bourgeoisie itself, the same must be applied to science. You can't just put up a poster saying, Mm -hmm. fucking love science, bro and then expect that to be substitute for serious analysis. And far too many people who call themselves Marxists have taken bourgeois science at face value and not applied a class analysis exactly. to it. Is, is, mm-hmm. is that the way you see it as well? I, this was a huge awakening for me in terms of the political nature of science. And I guess, you know, as someone who's read Marx and Engels and, all, you know, much a lot of Marxist literature, I'm kind of embarrassed that... I was never really cued in on it until now, but um, you know, just really seeing the ways in which um, certain science is highlighted and certain science is repressed. And now that the U.S. Um, election has been has been secured by Joe Biden and inauguration is a few days away, like it's going to be on the twentieth. We're on the sixteenth today of January. Um, we're seeing new science be platformed and highlighted. And so um, exactly like what you're saying is that we can't take bourgeois science at its face. Like I think that bourgeois science is 
is ultimately like it, it's not a search for truth. It is at its core an instrument to 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 um, to secure and, and continue capitalist domination. That is the core. Uh, that's the core goal of bourgeois science. So while, of course, some th- truth must be produced in that process because capitalism cannot just be unmoored from, you know, real life entirely, um, that truth is packaged with untruth and it's, it's, um, and it's delivered through, like, in a way which is um, abstracted from the totality of society because um, the bourgeoisie can only can only see science and see knowledge through the lens of their own class domination and through their own kind of worldview, and not it's not a proletarian point of view, which would be which is a universal point of view. Okay, so so this is these two things are extremely important, and I think this is something that's been lost on a lot of Marxists during this pandemic, and I think that it was induced by um, fear. Uh, especially as the first the the as very alarming data was coming out of China in the beginning, um, but I think that a lot of Marxist and leftist leftists have pretty much paused their analysis at that point, and they haven't inter- interrogated things in any depth at all, um, and that's just not the dialectical method. Like, you know, nothing that comes out of bourgeois society can just be taken at face value. We need to we need to apply yeah the dialectical method to really get to the to to find truth in this that's been packaged with untruth so just extract that from from the the, the propaganda but also understand how science is being propagandized and why um and so yeah it's just like any other piece of of politics in bourgeois society it's it just another tool of the bourgeoisie and we have to understand it as such it's not it's not meant for us like it's not meant to better society in any real way it's meant to maintain class domination yeah exactly and also the the way that the scientific um the scientific process has been thoroughly incorporated into the rest of capitalist production is something which has only accelerated in the last 40 to 50 years so the centers of learning for instance the big research universities have become more and more just um, other centers of other centers of production they've become linked explicitly to the uh, business interests of a lot of the major capitalist entities that provide the funding for their research or in some cases they've become linked to other capitalist countries who provide the funding for their research I'm thinking specifically of uh, scientific institutions at, at the University of Manchester which get a lot of funding from the Chinese government to research what the Chinese government wants them to research and the same would be true of whatever GlaxoSmithKline pays for or what AstraZeneca pays for and that's become mm-hmm. ever more prevalent as time has gone on especially as in terms of in British terms the uh, research scientific research has been one of the uh, big areas where there's still a lot of investment inside um, inside scientific research institutions so to believe that this field of knowledge is somehow separate to and somehow above the regular relations of production is a very foolish assumption and it's a very foolish assumption that um, Mm. some Marxists have made which is reason why we wanted to do these series of programs in the first place so why don't we start at what you you hinted at there in your, your previous comment which is that the change in the messaging now within the capitalist media itself uh, points us towards the next year and points us towards what what the next move is from 
the capitalist governments of the Western world in particular, but you can apply this more widely in terms of the, the lockdown, the utility of lockdowns, the health benefits of lockdowns. The messaging is changing. And there was a piece in Time magazine, of all places, just the other day that um, <laughs> mm-hmm. made the, the case that the public health benefits of the lockdowns had been dubious at best. Now, they they caveated that towards mm. the end of the article and says, oh, well, some scientists say this and some scientists say maybe not. But the fact is there are now more and more articles within the capitalist press saying what the what the the more questioning scientists had raised from the start which is that the health benefits of these the lockdowns are at best unproven and it's worth noting that people like the 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 famed Dr Fauci in uh, the United States and people who are involved in the UK government's scientific advisory group all were on record until March of last year as saying that lockdowns were not a viable method of controlling pandemics and were not something that would they were looking at in terms of pandemic response plans and in fact lockdowns weren't part of the British government's multiple pandemic response plans until they swung around to the idea in March of 2020. So we've got a shifting picture here in terms of the uh, the scientific the prominent scientific uh, thinkers, all the the public scientists who've been platformed on capitalist media, they've changed their tune not once now, but twice and possibly three times. Fauci changed his mind on masks two times. Um, Various other Mm. scientists who have been elevated into what are politicised and indeed political positions within governments have also changed their minds repeatedly. Fauci was on record as saying he was... Um, hedging his bets on herd immunity until the the polling was right for it. So another thing that Mm. needs to be emphasised is that these scientific figures who've been elevated into positions of public policy makers have also begun to behave like politicians. They're not following the science. Mm. They're following political and, of course, economic priorities. So that's, that's that's the actual picture, which is that the messaging on masks, the messaging on lockdowns, the two, two of the big things that have defined the last year in terms of the what you're told you should do or what you need to do to stop the spread, both of these things are contested territory and are now becoming, especially when it comes to lockdowns, more contested. And we're going to look into a little bit of the reasons as to why that is. But do you want to jump in with anything, jumping off what I've just said there as well? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean... I think it's um I think we need to realize that the science behind these lockdowns and masking has and asymptomatic spread and all these things the actual evidence behind these things has not changed. It's always been the same. There is no evidence of benefit for any of these things. Okay? There's no good evidence. What I've really observed is the rise in something that's called public health epidemiology, mm. which is um, yeah an approach which uses not evidence to determine public policy, but modeling. Modeling has become much more dominant in the scientific discourse and scientific decision making than it ever was before. Um, and what we see, what we observe in the previous pandemic protocols 
of any advanced capitalist nation is that um, they were all based on the best available evidence of the benefit of lockdowns, of masking and, you know, all these different things. Right. And that's why all of them recommend against doing these things. They all recommend against universal masking. They all recommend against, um, you know, widespread lockdowns of healthy people um, on the basis that there is no evidence of benefit. So what science has done, quote unquote, what bourgeois science has done, I guess, is a better way of putting it, is create evidence in the form of modeling, which has been used as a justification for applying these non-evidence based approaches to dealing with this pandemic. And so now that, um, you know, you and I think that the political goal of this pandemic, like the, the political usefulness of this pandemic has been exhausted with the election of Joe Biden and the, you know, the, the removal of Donald Trump. Um, I, I believe what we're, we're kind of seeing in a small way over this week, we were seeing new kind of the resurgence of, uh, of evidence, yeah. right? The, the, uh, evidence as a, as a justification for, for policy rather than modeling. Um, so I think that what we'll see, and I think that what I've seen over the week is for instance, stuff come out about, um, the, the, uh, the fact that we may have already uh, reached herd immunity, which if anyone remembers was deemed, you know, it, it was, it was, it was a, uh, something you could not say at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was something that was basically akin to murder yeah. trying to, um, yeah, like uh, just pursuing a strategy of, of herd immunity. So I'm seeing moves in my government and also in the UK, especially. I think the UK is really on the cutting edge of COVID-19 revisionism. Well, we were on the cutting edge of um, bullshit, which is what the, the economic basis <laughs> of the UK really is. But we'll get into that later. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think so. I'm paying really close attention to the, the, to the British uh, bourgeois press because... I really think that that is where they're at the the the, the kind of the cutting edge here, and so um, I think that uh, Canada is very much behind. It, 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 you know, I think the the U.S. and the U.K. That's where we should really be watching out to see where the quote the bourgeois science on this mm. is going. And what I'm seeing is a move back to you know long-standing concepts in epidemiology that have you know been accepted as. As, as as truth for for decades such as herd immunity such as the you know the lack of benefit uh, lack of evidence of benefit for lockdowns such as the um you know the non-existence of asymptomatic spread things of that nature um are now kind of resurging when it's politically useful for it to to happen um and i and i think that the why it's happening is a really key question and it's something i'm still wrapping my head around and i think that you're a few days ahead of me in terms of your analysis so it'll be good for me to hear this out well let's just explore a couple of areas there that i know have been of controversy and i know that have been of concern to a lot of people certainly that i meet in um, just everyday conversation and uh, in just in the street, neighbors, uh, people I've worked with, etc. Now, you mentioned their asymptomatic spread. Now, that was one of the big justifications for school closures, yes, that both on both sides mm -hmm. of the Atlantic. And this has been again brought, it was brought back a few weeks ago when there was the argument being had between the government and the teachers' unions as to what should be done about schools. And asymptomatic spread was the headline that they were using to say, look, the children maybe won't show signs of it, but they'll get it and they'll carry it home and kill grandma, basically. Um, now, mm -hmm. the, 
science for that, the actual science for that, is nowhere near as solid as it was presented to be. And also, the a lot of the, the lockdown sceptical scientists have been pointing out from the very beginning that the idea that mm -hmm. you could carry around what is supposed to be this horrific disease with, and show absolutely no sign of it doesn't make any sense. And there's nothing, there's very, there's little or no evidence to support that. Um, so do you want to, do you want to, well, if I can interject, interject oh, okay. So I think that the main, the main, the crux of the issue isn't so much that people can be asymptomatic. I think that they're, I think that's a fine concept. Like, you know, the existence of, of, you know, carrying a disease and being asymptomatic is well known. Like for instance, HIV is a, is a good example of that. The main issue is the idea that asymptomatic spread can um, is a major driver of a pandemic. So the idea that you're showing no symptoms, you're unaware that you are sick because you're completely asymptomatic, and yet you are somehow able to spread this disease. Yes. Okay. So the 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 the, the it begs the question. Okay, how how does this mm. happen? Okay. So before I go into what the scientists have kind of conjured up, I just want to emphasize that even as late as January, Fauci is on the record saying there is no evidence that asymptomatic spread is a major driver of any respiratory um, virus. Uh, any so that Fauci, okay, so he says that there is no evidence that asymptomatic spread is a major driver of any respiratory virus mm. pandemic. Okay, never in the history of mankind, and there's there's no direct evidence to this day that asymptomatic spread um, has been a major driver of COVID nineteen. Um, there's I'm not saying that. So I think this is um, I think learning about the scientific method and learning about concepts like the null hypothesis and what constitutes good and bad evidence is something I'm still in the process of doing and I really ramped up during this pandemic but it's very valuable information for working people and I think everyone should equip themselves with this knowledge going forward because it will really allow you to assess what kinds of things are being told to you by the bourgeoisie but essentially asymptomatic spread the existence of asymptomatic spread is completely based on mm. modeling okay so what they saw initially coming out of China was a very high, what they thought was a very high proportion of people that were asymptomatic. So they were seeing a lot of people who um, had, had tested positive for COVID-19, but were allegedly asymptomatic. And the, that, that amount was something like 80% at the beginning. At the same time, they saw a very high infection rate. So a very high R0 value, as they say. And the scientists couldn't figure out how, how a disease with such a high asymptomatic rate could also simultaneously spread, um, have such a high spreading rate, okay? And so they, from this, the conjecture was that asymptomatic spread must, must, be, must, be, um, must be a major driver in, in, in COVID-19. And so that's when you saw things like viral load and people breathing on one another with a high viral load and somehow you're your your um your your sent that's that's the medium through which you're sending the COVID nineteen. This is all hypothetical. There is no direct evidence of this at all. And any study that's been done using direct evidence, that is contact tracing and and testing, has failed to demonstrate that asymptomatic spread is a is is, is a significant phenomenon. It certainly may happen. 
So for instance, if you're, if you're married to someone, you live with them, you're in close contact all the time. Like obviously a married couple is in, <laughs> all up in each other's business all the time. So yeah, of course, like that can per- perhaps happen. But for most casual interactions that we go through in life, like just seeing someone, speaking to them, having a coffee, whatever it might be, like sitting with them in a room, there's no evidence that that kind of activity um, that is asymptomatic spread is a significant uh, phenomenon in that kind of context. But the policies that we have in place are premised that it is, mm. right? So that's why we all need to consider ourselves, even healthy people who have no positive test of COVID-19, who have no uh, symptoms, they must all consider themselves a threat to the other person because whether they know it or not type thing. So I think this is, it's been highly psychologically damaging to the proletariat, but um, but more so there's simply like, there, there's no, there, there is literally no evidence that this is mm. true. Okay. So a recent, a recent, uh, very comical piece of bourgeois science came out and was published in JAMA magazine. And I sent this mm. to you, Alex, and basically the authors construct a model showing that 59% of COVID spread is asymptomatic. Okay. And then they pass that model's results as proof of that claim, okay? <laughs> so <laughs> it's completely circular. And this is what asymptomatic spread is based on. It's circular mm. reasoning, no evidence at all. Um, and I think that a lot of bourgeois science going forward will be of, of that variety. And the, the reason why bourgeois scientists cannot understand why the spread continues, despite the fact that, uh, that they have to invent this notion of asymptomatic spread, I think, I think it's, it's, it's multi-layered. but I think a big reason why is because bourgeois scientists are just not able to take into account the totality of the social relations in which we exist, okay? So um, the fact of the matter is that even when working people have access to sick days, they often do not take them even when no. they're sick. And there's a whole variety of reasons. Yeah, they're, they're scared of, 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 of being, of, um, of, of retribution from the boss. They don't want to let down their coworkers. Well, the sick days are always um, monitored. So, I mean, in my, one exactly. of my previous employers, which was, better than most you had five days that you could take sick without being certified by a doctor and then it was up to 15 days I think that could be taken with certification and then like I stand a doctor's note and after that there had to be more medical evidence provided but this was held against (coughs) you in any performance review and as I said that was in a much better public sector employer in the private sector you're looking at one or two days without a doctor's note and you're looking at little more than statutory sick pay which is not great and so anybody with any yeah. significant financial or family responsibilities is not going to want to take a day off work not not in the current climate and certainly not in the private sector where there's very little trade union predict- protection even the minimal that exists within the public sector Exactly. So, but bourgeois scientists don't understand that because they have jobs where they can stay mm. home easily. That they have a, you know, they have they have um, they have more social capital. So, you know, if they do lose their job, they don't they're not as afraid of finding another one. You know, like, and so they they can't understand that. You know, the fact is that, and there's been surveys on this done in the UK that many many workers, up to fifty or sixty percent of them, will go into work even during COVID nineteen. Will go into work mm. anyways. Even if they, if they have like mild symptoms and a lot of the symptoms of COVID-19 are pretty mild. They're just like a cough, you know, and so they're going into work wearing masks, masks, you know, again, have no evidence that 
that they prevent the spread of any respiratory illness. Um, people can check out a Cochrane review that was done in, in uh, December 2020 to see that there, there is still no evidence that they prevent the spread of, uh, of any respiratory illness, including uh, in the hospital setting. Yeah. So they go into work with mild in illness and they're spreading the disease in that way. It's, so it's, it's really not rocket science. You can understand it if you just look at it through, um, through you know, I'm not even doing it properly because I'm, you know, I'm not like a, a great dialectician, but like, you know, just looking at it through a little bit with a little bit more of, or of a holistic lens, the spread of COVID-19 is easily explainable with no recourse to such magical thinking as asymptomatic spread. And there's no need for it. Um, but it's being used as a bludgeon against the working class to justify these lockdowns. This is essentially the crux. This is the the the, the reason why we have these right now. Really, the big reason why. Yeah, and the masking. because the and this gets to the crux of what we want to explore, which is that the the lockdowns, such as they are, such as they have been, have been had obviously had a severe impact, certainly on the petty bourgeoisie and small business class there's a lot of there's increased bankruptcies both in uh, canada united states and britain and across the european nations as well but in terms of a lot of the the working class again as i said earlier uh, they're still going into work the 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 masks the masks the social distancing which again is of dubious scientific benefit the social distancing as well uh, mm -hmm. In fact, there's studies that were done of the medical response to the what was referred to as the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, 19, 20, that social distancing then was seen, seen to have not worked, didn't work. And that was, there were studies <coughs> written on that by people associated <coughs> with the UK government's scientific advisory group, who then later turned around and said, oh, well, maybe it does. So... Again, we've got scientists changing what their previous research has stated to fit with a political priority. And the political priority is, well, a number of, a number of things. As one of the things I want to get us to get across in this program is that there is never, under capitalism, class interest operates in a variety of different ways in terms of it manifests itself through various different forces. If you go into an investigation of the COVID-19 response from Western governments looking for just one solitary single reason as to why it's happened, then you're going to be chasing a chimera. Uh, but what is true is that the bulk of the working class, both in the early lockdown and certainly now in Britain, have continued working. If you look at the uh, usage numbers mm. on the public transport system in London, they're down from where they usually are due to the number of people working at home. Also, the fact is that certain economic sectors have been completely fucked over by this, namely hospitality, catering, uh, and certain aspects of in-person retail. But this, the tube usage, which is a good, uh, the primary method of getting into london in terms of uh, public transportation tube usage is still very very high people are still going in every day people are still um having mm -hmm. to turn up to a workplace and do either uh, produce something or work on something for eight hours a day and then going back again in fact the police have been uh enforcing the lockdowns in terms of if they catch somebody uh lingering or dawdling on their way back from work then they'll pounce on them but you know, going to and from work is mm -hmm. accepted, but and that in itself is a farce. 
So what's being done um, over the lockdowns is, in my interpretation, it's an exercise that is partially about um, perception management. Uh, the governments are run by people who are not especially, let's say, intellectually curious and aren't very good at actually making political decisions. The What we're going to talk about later in the episode is also things like the ma- the method of which, the, through which bourgeois politicians govern in the period since the 1980s, what's referred to as the neoliberal period, is they see themselves as, and indeed are, just merely technocrats or bureaucrats who are there to keep a system running and tweak it periodically but not do anything too dramatic and my point about the lockdowns is that that model of capitalist governance hasn't really changed which is you've got certain people locked down but all the key sectors of the economy in Britain have kept going it's like high finances kept going even stuff like uh, car production where obviously a lot of a lot, you get a lot of people turning up to work in one plant, that's at eighty percent of where it was in the previous year. Now that's a drop, but it hasn't fallen off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And you look at other uh, mm-hmm. sectors of economic activity, you see a drop, mainly from the first lockdown, but then you see a rapid recovery. You see um, small business being churned out and spit and churned up and spat out, but the big bourgeoisie is keeping its production operations going. And that's the thing to bear in mind. This is obviously the lockdown does impact on people. Obviously, people who are more predisposed to um, or have pre-existing conditions have been severely affected and many have died of COVID-19. But for the bulk of the working age population, the regular exploitation of capital has continued. And that's something which has not really been explored by... I would say any leftist organization within within the western world at all uh the the response mm-hmm. to the early pandemic as you indicated a minute ago was that um when the government here floated the idea of herd immunity the response to the left was the tories want to kill everybody which mm-hmm. typifies a certain hysterical hyperbole that has really the hamstrings modern modern socialist parties and individuals which is just the idea that the conservative party in britain and you have the same in canada um is just a a bunch of absolute psychopaths who want to kill as many people as possible now capitalism will you know grind up and spit out millions if it's profitable to do so but one of the things that always was must be bearing in bearing in mind is that without a workforce there's no capitalism Capitalism cannot exist mm-hmm. without exploiting workers, and so the idea that they were mm-hmm. that that this if this was going to kill the titanic number of people that has been claimed that it would to the point where profitability would be damaged that badly, you would have seen a much more different response. As what actually what actually happened, the working age population continues, the where the exploitation continues, the turnover of capitalism continues. And what you get is a perception management exercise by a group of politicians who, whose entire training in bourgeois politics is how to conduct perception management exercises. So that's that's the, my view from they're looking at the Johnson government and, it, and its response and the left's 
hysterical, overblown, and also opportunistic response to it, which I'll go into more later. But do you want to talk about a little bit about how the the perceptions and the realities in Canada? Well, I mean, you know, as I, I've been telling you a lot, um, I just, it's been so shocking to see, I mean, I guess like I'm, as I, I feel like for the first time in my life, I'm really applying the dialectical method. And, you know, it just allows you to see the patterns everywhere and how governments everywhere, uh, capitalist governments everywhere are so yeah. similar. Um, you know, the same kind of characters crop up. You know, you've got Str- Stromer, I've got Jagmeet Singh. They're both so similar in so many ways. And the left's response in all countries have been essentially identical. Um, and, um, yeah, like, I, I think it uh, it definitely is an exercise in, in perceptive perception management. I think it's supposed to give, like, I think, I think the left needs to rid itself, maybe not the left, but you know, whatever Marxists are remain are doing analysis right now need to rid themselves of the of the pretension that um, econo- that production was ever really locked down. It wasn't. That, that never happened ever from the start. Okay, like I think initially uh, the bourgeoisie saw some data coming. My 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 theory is that initially the bourgeoisie saw some data coming out of China and panicked. And they thought that perhaps this was going to affect working aged people in a serious way, much like the 1918 flu did, where the average age of death was like 28. So they maybe thought that perhaps it would really affect working people. Um, And so they did try to do an economic economic lockdown, but they never they can't like they they just they they they, like if they were to shut down production, it would mean the end of capitalism, essentially. And the, the capital Capitalists are not going to end no. capitalism. So what we saw initially was just like, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it's I, not I think left commit should suicide. know. <laughs> it's no, capitalism is not taking itself to a Swiss clinic for a swift injection. <laughs> no. um, so I think what it did was the best it could do. Um, and then when it saw that it, it you know, production went on. Um, and, uh, you know, mo- the vast majority of workers continued going into work every day to the factories, to the, you know, restaurants, to whatever else was, was ongoing. Um, and yes, certain segments of the workforce were, were kind of put out of work. Um, and I guess, like, I, I guess it's interesting to, to, to understand why, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it's interesting to think about why certain uh, domains did see such uh, losses um, and the losses were focused on the leisure and the travel um, and kind of like the services industry like the I think I think it's because uh, those domains I guess not travel that much but the the leisure and the restaurant industry is run by the petty bourgeoisie who do not have as much political power as the big bourgeoisie and so I think they just kind of lost the bet there uh, with the governments around the world. Um, and so they kind of took the blow yeah. early on in terms of this shock yeah. reaction. But yeah, like uh, capitalism very quickly reconstituted itself. Um, the the people who were who lost their jobs um, were taken up in various domains. There's been increases um, in manufacturing, in, in employment manufacturing and all the... And let me just open this up, actually. I, I was just reading this report from the... Um, well, anyways, I don't really need to open it up. It, it, it like the y- people can check the the Bureau of Labor Statistics from the United States and see there's been huge gains in all domains in terms of employment since the start of the pandemic in all domains except for education and um, you know travel mm. and leisure. 
Um, and so it, you know, it, it, we're in the United States, for instance, employment levels are back to um, 6.7%. Unemployment levels, rather, are back to 6.7%, which is actually lower than the 2008 yeah. crisis. And what I thought I thought was really interesting is that in Canada, so our unemployment level is back to basically on par with 2008. Mm. And then the major provinces had another wave of harsh lockdowns starting in late November. And the, those even the, and they were the, basically the same approach as the, the previous yeah. lockdowns. But they didn't have the same effect on employment levels, mm. right? So we can see that capitalism has ad- adapted to it. It's, it doesn't bother it anymore. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't cause the huge shock that it did before. So capitalism has reconfigured itself. Um, it, it was able to, you know, as you've said, uh, take up new technologies, apply them in order to continue accumulation in this new paradigm. And it's done so yeah. quite easily. Um, so I think that, Mark, when you realize that, when you realize that this is not a threat to production, it really changes the analysis. It really, really changes the way we have to approach COVID-19. Um, well, just yeah, to and interject yeah, for a minute, the UK number on that, um, the UK mm-hmm. number is around, has hovered around about the 5% mark. And that's including various caveats when it comes to things like people getting furloughed and still being counted as employed. Um, the government here has used a rather elastic definition of employed for quite some time. So that's not a new thing. They, But the, the peak yeah, in exactly. the trough here is still, um, if, you, if we look over the long-term period, the, it's still not hit the, um, the crisis points that it did in 2008. In fact, what you see is a you see is its usual usual peaks and troughs. There's been hits in some areas, but still the the unemployment rate is not at crisis levels. For instance, the overall unemployment rate at the moment, the average unemployment rate for the uh, people aged 16 plus, has been around about the 1.7 million mark, and that's in October of last year. And the next release of the data isn't due for another 10 days. So we'll see if the later lockdown had a bigger impact. But to give an indication of scale, the population of the UK is now much bigger than it was 30 years ago. And 30 years ago, or 35 years ago, there was anything up to 3 million unemployed. And that was what they were admitting to. And that's with them back then fiddling the figures to put more people on uh, long-term illness benefit or what was called incapacity benefit. To, to hide the numbers so we've got 1.7 million we're not we're barely even we're just over halfway towards the numbers that were there 35 years ago so we're not even at that level of 1980s crisis in terms of unemployment with all the caveats over um, who's classified as being in work um, gig economy and employment being obviously a very shaky um, shaky occupation but that's the numbers. Uh, mm. it's, uh, the numbers, as they are looking on the through the Office of National Statistics here, don't go along with the idea that we are in a uh, pandemic-induced unemployment trough. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think people will say, "Well, we can't trust these numbers because of, of all the caveats that you're mentioning." And I think it's true. We should all we should take any any piece of bourgeois knowledge produced 
and we have to look at it dialectically, of course. But I, I think it's, you know, I think this employment, unemployment data is actually very, it's essential to capital's, like it needs that data in order to function. So I think that we can take it and, you know, assess it in a, like, I think we, unlike COVID-19 data, um, I think that we can kind of look at it and, and, and think, okay, this actually needs to be useful and it actually is used by a capitalist to plan and to, to make well, yeah, moves. Because- and so I think that we can actually take this as like a, you know, a, a more or less accurate picture of reality. Well, also the, the, the COVID-19 data, or not the data, but the modeling and the scare stories were evidently not taken yeah, too seriously exactly. by the capitalist class themselves. It seems like a trivial point to make, <laughs> but just look at the sheer number of them who have carried on their own lives as normal. Those aren't people who are um, being stalked by the horror of deadly, deadly death. Um, uh, it, it's not just um, it's not just arrogance. It's the fact that they they are secure enough in their position to know that whatever the whatever happens, they'll be able to get it addressed through the resources that they've got available to them, and they're just confident enough to 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 and to know that whatever they get isn't going to affect them that badly. They know what is the reality, yeah. which is that it's principally something which is going to really make the those who are of a certain age and with the uh, pre-existing conditions, they're going to be the book group that suffers. And it's not, it's not certainly not going to be Gavin Newsom, Justin Trudeau. And I know Boris got it, but they, you know, pumped him full of um, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and he was all right again in a couple of days. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like I think, so to return to your original question as to why these lockdowns are being done, like I think at a service level, yeah, it's just basically, because, you know, the fact of the matter is that the lockdowns are quite popular in Canada. Like there's a very high approval rating of them because people feel like, um, you know, they, they, they people generally take they trust scientists. They trust the experts and they and they trust that if something is as drastic like this is being done, it actually helps. And I said this last time we spoke, like, I do think that most people are inclined towards pro-social behavior. They don't want to hurt people. They want to. They want to be of assistance um, in a way in a ways that they can, and and so they're happy to do something if they really think that it helps. Um, and so governments know this, and so they're they're basically like, yeah, taking advantage of of people's um, you know pro social inclinations and taking advantage of the fact that scientists and doctors and everything have a lot of respect in widespread society, and they're using this to kind of give what the people want, quote unquote. And the people are, you know, suffering enormously for it, but they're doing it because they they, they think that there's no other option. Um, and that's why these things are able to fly and governments are, you know, they're benefiting politically for it because they, they appear as if they're doing something. But in reality, not really doing anything to address the health crisis by any means. Like, they're, they're not, you know, increasing healthcare capacity. They're not overhauling the long-term care system. They're not doing anything that would actually address the deaths and the hospitalization rate. But no one's really paying attention no. to that yeah lucky for them and <laughs> the the early uh, popularity of lockdown or the early um, perception that it was doing something positive can be tested in the case of governor cuomo in new york who made an absolute mm-hmm. catastrophe made an absolute mess of the care home situation in new york and then covered up for the care home owners who it turned out were heavy campaign contributors to him um 
But early on, he was presented as the guy who had it under control. He was doing a lockdown. He was giving daily briefings. He was very assertive. Mm -hmm. Um, But what he was Mm -hmm. doing was an exercise in marketing, brand building, and perception management. The actual record was Mm -hmm. as bad as any of the worst, as the worst dingbat Republican governor in the in the United States, who would be portrayed as some sort of hopeless Yahoo who was endangering people by refusing to do a lockdown. The catastrophic care home death rate in New York, Cuomo has gotten away with it because he has uh, the media on his side. He's very been very good at playing the role of the calm, authoritative presence, even though he's nothing of the sort. He loses his temper all the time, screams at people, is very unpredictable in his personal behaviour. But he was giving the image across as the guy who had it under control. And, of course, the media, wanting somebody to compare favourably to Trump, who was changing his message on it every five seconds, they compared him favourably, and therefore Cuomo's popularity goes up. Because, again, this is these aren't exercises in public health necessarily. They are exercises in the appearance of it. So, as you, was, as you were saying yeah. in our previous mm-hmm. discussion, um, you know, in some areas healthcare capacity has shrunk during the pandemic. Um, There's been um, shrinkage in the United States where uh, in certain areas healthcare capacity has gone down. Doctors and nurses have actually been laid off during this time. Yes, yes. Yeah, and the employment data shows as much. There's been a shrinkage in the healthcare field in terms of employment, incredibly. So if what is going Mm -hmm. on then is essentially... Capitalism, to a large degree, and I think this is something which is shown over and over again when we reach what might be described, what would be described as crisis points in recent years, or described mm. as crisis points. Capitalism talks about, or the capitalist politicians will come on TV and talk a talk a big game about tackling this or that or the other, and we're going to do this and we're going to tackle that, and then you dig into what their actual response is. And it's basically they're finding ways to continue as normal or as close to normal as possible. For instance, one piece of data which relates to something you were saying earlier about the impossibility under modern capitalism of actually doing, uh, quote-unquote, serious lockdowns is that in, mm-hmm. from April to June, something like 100,000 people came into the UK via the UK airport system, unchecked and un. Un, untested and they only just started talking about doing testing of people coming and going via the airports just last week and that's after nine months of supposed uh, lockdowns and travel restrictions but the the airports continued to run and people continued to come in because the airports being open that's a big thing for the ruling class themselves that's how they get around that's how a lot of their their people mm-hmm come into and go out of different countries. So that's an important thing for the bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. So they made sure that remained open. Now, ordinary people suffered travel restrictions, but the people who were important, the senior members of the ruling class, governmental classes, etc., were able to travel around undisturbed into into and out of Britain. So that's another yeah. example where the, the, the rhetoric and even the policy towards the working class and the middle class did not match up with how the bourgeoisie were behaving themselves. No, I, in Canada, we had dozens of politicians that took sunny holidays during mm. the winter break while they were telling people to not go see their families yeah. for Christmas. So, 
yeah like um and and some of them even recorded pre-recorded messages standing in front of their of the legislative buildings in their provinces or in their homes to make it seem as though they were still in mm. canada and uh, yeah it's just it, it's so immoral but i mean it just and but i think people need to you know it's just another piece of evidence as to what this disease actually means right like we need we need to gather this, these pieces of evidence to come to a realization of what this disease means for capital, and um, and 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 understand that it it you know I don't you know I really don't think we can understand this as something that's equally damaging to capital and the working no. class. I mean, nothing ever is under yeah, it's it, nothing ever is under capitalism. But I I think that the working class is very much taking all of the damages from this. The capital is not is not really being damaged like it's its ability to accumulate is not really being damaged um definitely the health of the bourgeoisie is not being no. effective affected so it, it's it's really all the negatives are falling on the shoulders of the working class and i think people will say well the thing is there has been an economic contraction like we are seeing there has been an you know a, a slowdown in growth because of you know quote unquote because of the pandemic and i don't think it can be understood as because of the pandemic we were due for a recession it was you know it, it's just, it can only be understood i think as a business yes. cycle that's it and so whatever whatever effect the pandemic is having in wider society must be understood not economically only um but must be understood as a as a political instrument i don't think we can you know what I mean? I don't think that it is. I don't think it's uh, it's driving the economics of this issue. I think the economics are being driven by the underlying um, um, un underlying um, uh, contradictions of capital. Yes. And um, yes, and 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 the way that this disease is being dealt with, and the way in which the politics are being are are being uh, the, the instantiation of the politics that is all secondary yes. to that. It's all secondary well, to that. Let's yeah. Let's jump um, into uh, a mm -hmm. little bit of the the deeper economic picture then, because that will help us look forward as well. So when you look at the um, the ten years between now and the what was credited as being the tail end of the two thousand and eight to twenty ten recession, um, in British terms, mm -hmm. there's been very slow, low growth for that period. So like around about. 1 to 1.6 percent quite a lot of the time if we're lucky and wages have recovered far slower than that and that in itself though doesn't even tell, <coughs> tell you the full picture if you want to get a look at like what is the reality of the modern capitalist economy in not just Britain but Canada America Britain Western Europe in general then you got to look at the long-term trends since World War Two uh, because that will show you that what is going on here is a reflection of what Marx referred to as the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, which is that you get, after mm -hmm. World War II, you get a, a big period of growth, which is based on rebuilding the capital that was destroyed in the six years of the war. And once that mm -hmm. burst of economic activity wears itself out, and that in Britain in Britain's terms is around about the mid 1960s 1965 the graph from even the World Bank and the, the graphs from the IMF over returns on capital show it clearly drops significantly uh, in 1965 and that coincides with a 20 year long period of intense class struggle in Britain 
between the, the ruling class and the working class, where the ruling class are trying to resolve the contradictions in their favour. And ultimately, that was a struggle that they, that, that battle they, they won. And they won by smashing up the trade union movement, mm -hmm. deindustrializing the country, destroying whole areas of um, fixed capital in terms of uh, plant and machinery, in terms of air whole areas of the country that were dedicated to industry. That capital was ripped up and essentially they were started again. But then you get uh, a, a slight boom coming out of that. But still, the return on capital is lower than it was in the immediate post-war period. And again, this is a picture that is not British specific. This is everywhere. And so the COVID Absolutely. fits in with that long-term decline on that long-term decline in terms of the return on invested capital. And you can't separate out the, the COVID crisis from that long-term trend. It does not represent, as some will say, some kind of new development that capital is pioneering. No, this is not separated from a long-term trend that can be mapped. Even in, British, in the British case, even earlier than World War II, World War II was a big interruption and offered the opportunity for capitalism to destroy a lot of capital and make money recreating itself. But do you want to go into that any further, Layla? Well, no, yeah. Like I think you pretty much covered it. Um, I, I, I'm really interested in speaking, something that I'm still working through is speaking about how, <coughs> excuse me, um, where... So yes, so I think I think the fundamentals are there. I think you're correct, and I I think I want to go into the current situation in terms of what we're seeing with the falling rate of profit and how capital is responding, and and why um, what we are exactly seeing with the change well, in employment. Let, let's dive into um, that then. And I yeah, sure. Um, well, okay. So my understanding of it is um, so. It, this is obviously more of a question I would say to you. So as you're saying, the, 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 the rate of um, profit has been falling for decades and capital has tried a few techniques to try to address that. Neoliberalism is kind of dominantly one of the ways it's tried to address that. Um, so my understanding is that essentially, so what we're seeing is a the contradictions of capital kind of playing out. So capital has had been investing in technology for a long time, try to increase productivity in response to class struggle. So as workers fought against um, capital for shorter work days and all these different things, um, capital responded by increasing um, technological uh, product uh, productivity through technology in order to uh, increase the rate of exploitation whilst in response to the fact that they could not, you know, do things like extend the working day or, um, you know, push down wages all that much. So when labor was defeated, though, um, maybe we can point that defeated definitively. So maybe we can say 1980s um, thereabout. Um, the technique that capital is now pursuing is to, in, to because now that... Um, because of productivity increases of productivity they've shed a lot of labor and they're seeing a decline in profit as yes. a result right so yeah so so the only thing they can really do at this point in order to increase profits is is of course not invest in productivity because that will only that has a contradictory 
effect, they can only expand the rate of absolute value, uh, a surplus value uh, exploitation. So that means that they need to push towards this paradigm where they're extending the working day, where they're um, they're bringing in more human labor into the process, which is a little bit more limited in the advanced capitalist nations because we have a, a declining birth rate here. So that's how I'm kind of understanding this. What do you think? Yeah, I think that the the uh, research, certainly the response since 2010 in Britain has been focused upon both the extension of the working day via technology. So yeah, from the mm-hmm. most basic thing of you know getting people, getting office workers responding to their emails from um, a mobile phone or laptop at home or on the train on the way to work. So you're working, you're getting at least um, an hour and a half more out of people who work in an office, but also by shedding long-term financial liabilities. That's another big thing. That's why every year mm. there's uh, the big employers and including the public sector come back for more chunks out of employee fa- uh, pension schemes. That's a big thing that they want to that long term liability they are desperate to get rid of. And so you see year after year more and more um, attacks on that so that uh, workers are paying in more working for longer. So they're extending retirement ages and ultimately getting less out of it. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. an, that's another key area mm-hmm. of of class struggle, and it's another key area of their attempt to extend profitability by shedding liabilities. And then the other thing is the fact that they, the the reason why they love gig economy work so much is because a it's a return to the most um, uh, primitive and early stages of capitalism in Britain. Literally, the idea that. Um, you used to line up the workers in the morning and then the foreman walks along and picks somebody out. These days, you see <laughs> yeah. it's you with a text message. Mm-hmm. And the um, that's that's a return to uh, a, a methods of exploitation that was last used really on a mass basis pre-World War II, before the, um, the union movement got to its strongest point and largely eliminated that as a practice in many areas. But it's no coincidence that capitalism returns to that once it's crushed its um, resistance. And in turn, in British terms, the working class, as in in organisational terms and political terms, has not recovered from the uh, defeat of 84 to 85 and the disaster that followed it. And there's been no political attempt to repair that that's been in any way successful. So... What you're actually mm-hmm. seeing, in my view, is a return to cruder and cruder forms of accumulation, but dressed up and delivered mm-hmm. via high tech. Mm-hmm. So, you know, gig economy sure. work managed through your phone. Um, you know, um, mm. more and more people on temporary employment contracts. Like the last free jobs that I've had have all been through uh, employment agencies and on week by week contracts, whereby the only work you're guaranteed for is for the next three to four weeks at most and they can let you go with the snap of the Mm. fingers Mm -hmm. so that means that labor's in a more Mm -hmm. repressed and suppressed situation enabling greater greater levels of exploitation you'll work for longer and not raise any questions but if the boss can just say don't need you tomorrow so we're returning to Mm. more primitive more brute ways of exploitation and that's that's a sign of the fact that not only has the working class been defeated, but it's also a sign of the fact that capitalism hasn't actually managed to solve its contradictions. 
for all its talk of um, you know, revolutionary technologies, what it's using the technologies to ultimately do is restore prior methods of exploitation, but delivered in a slightly newer package. Okay. I'm uh, Obviously, I'm un- entirely on board with this analysis, but... Okay, so I don't know if this is too early to jump on to this topic of Donald Trump, but this is something like I think, okay, so what we're seeing now, I think, is an unprecedented move like, like, okay, so capital is trying to solve its contradictions. That's nothing new. And more so class struggle is at, you know, perhaps one of its lowest points in history, and it has basically no resistance. Why... I I think it's pretty obvious at this point that COVID-19 was used as a political tool, not only to as a, you know, kind of a marketing kind of political uh, points gaining system by politicians across the world, but notably, especially in, in the United States, was used as a political tool to dispose of Donald Trump. So why do you think that is like why? Why is Donald Trump such a because I just don't see him as a big threat. To, I never saw him as a big threat to capital, but I was taken aback by the fierce response against him by big capital, by big media and all these um, large, um, large capitalists. Um, and basically like this, um, this unification between corporate and the political uh, classes in the United States against him. So why? Like, how can we tie this to what you're saying about about the ways in which we're returning to primitive forms of accumulation because he doesn't fucking love science there you go (laughs) no um i'm I'm joking but that is part of it but let's 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 dive in um i like you um i when i first looked at trump i thought well he's a joker he's obviously gonna just completely fall into line with what whatever the dominant factions of the bourgeoisie want um he's not a serious threat to Mm -hmm. it i also thought by the way that sanders and corbyn weren't serious threats either um but both of the well sanders destroyed himself corbyn partially destroyed himself and was destroyed but the the react the, the hysterical reaction to trump is an interesting one because Here's a guy who is essentially a TV star and a, a real estate guy and not a particularly successful real estate guy. His main, his main work and his main triumph has been one of advertising and building a brand for himself. That's his thing. So here's a, here's a guy who I don't think was ever going to be seriously serious about taking on ruling class interests. So why is it that you have this hysterical response to him? And there's many different layers to it. So when Trump runs yeah. in 2016, uh, what he does is he starts off um, and he seems to sort of crowdsource his ideas from the crowds he's facing. So he starts off with the, you know, um, we're going to build a great, great big wall to keep the rapist Mexicans out, though some I assume are good people. Um, he, he starts with that. That goes well. Then he starts getting into the, the trade thing. And I think this is one of the areas where the hostility from the ruling class does come from and is, to a certain extent, very real. Um, because he starts to get into it when he goes across like the what's referred to by bourgeois political analysts as uh, the Rust Belt in the United States, the big deindustrialized zones of the interior. And he starts to talk about the trade deals and he starts to hang them round Hillary Clinton's neck. Because, you know, obviously Bill Clinton passed mm. NAFTA 
and in a way that George H.W. Bush was not able to because Clinton was able to use the Democratic mm-hmm. Party's relationship with the supine and useless trade union movement in the United States to push through a much worse deal for Labour than George H.W. Bush could have gotten away with. Um, but Trump rightly sees this as an animating thing for people on the on the trail. He himself has been talking about, you know, uh, we're getting taken advantage of by China in trade deals. Now, that's not actually the case, but we'll come to that later. Um, and he starts to see that the crowd is really responding and his poll ratings in these key areas mm-hmm. like Wisconsin, um, Pennsylvania, other th- those um, post-industrialized states that he won in 2016, he starts to see his numbers go up when he more he talks about it. So he, he talks about it more and more and more. And he also starts throws in a few other things that um, are going to be seen as a threat by the ruling class or the dominant faction within the ruling class. He starts talking about scaling back certain of the wars, and then he starts talking up other wars as well. Mm-hmm. So he was always a contradiction. But the mere fact that he mm. mainstreamed uh, and won on a platform which included a denunciation of the trade relationship with the Chinese, that's something which is mm-hmm. is threatening to the U.S. ruling class because their relationship with the, the Chinese ruling class has been crucial for both countries in the previous, really, certainly the previous 30 years, certainly since the normalization permanent normal trade relations with China, another Clinton move, which um, secured for companies in the United States the ability to go into the Chinese special economic zones and enjoy massive hyper-exploitation of Chinese workers. But also, mm-hmm. so obviously secured um, huge profits for those American companies as well. So Trump coming in and getting in the way of that is a threat. And I'll I'll add in just a couple of other details uh, that relate back to the 2008 financial crisis. In 2008, uh, one of the things that is not talked about anywhere near enough is the fact that the Chinese government bought an enormous amount of American debt. And they did so basically at the demand of the Bush administration. Um, Hank Paulson, the Treasury Secretary Mm -hmm. at the time, basically turned around to the Chinese government and says, if you don't buy up this gigantic amount of debt well, we're going to be fucked and we can't buy the shit you're producing anymore, so you're going to be fucked. I mean, that's my very crude translation, but that is what he—that is what was done, <laughs> which is the Americans said, well, if we sink, you do. So you've got to stump up and basically buy this colossal amount of debt to make sure that we can keep this machine going. And that's, that's the key aspect mm-hmm. to understand. The modern American and the British capitalist economies are machines that are dedicated to a permanent churn they permanently they draw in capital and then um reinvest it out again but it's underpinned by a gigantic debt mountain and gigantic amounts of what is commonly referred to in marxist terms as fictitious capital which is capital which is we call it fictitious because it's something which is created on a balance sheet and it's not based on the productive labor of the working class it's just something which is conjured into existence. And the companies themselves, certainly over the period we're commonly referred to as the neoliberal period, have been using large amounts of fictitious capital um, to power themselves on. They've been using gigantic amounts of um, debt that they've taken on to pay for whatever investments they have done because they've not been willing to actually invest 
much of uh, their own money. Certainly the banks have played with gigantic elements, gigantic amounts of fictitious capital. The We were told after 2008, this was a common leftist discourse that, oh, the companies are sitting on giant cash reserves. Well, it's not actually true. They haven't actually got these uh, trillions of pounds, dollars, um, or euros in a vault somewhere. What they've got is a gigantic amount of numbers on a balance sheet. And unless the huge corporate debts that they have are continually, continually serviced by more capital coming in, or in the case of the last year and in um, previous years after 2008 as well, the gigantic amount of what was called quantitative easing, which is using the uh, the central banks of uh, the USA, Britain and other nations to buy up gigantic amounts of private debt and put um, created money into their accounts, then the, the debt doesn't get serviced and then you get a crash. So I, I say all of that as the background to why there is the hostility to Trump. Now, Trump hasn't got in the way, really, of ruling class priorities, but the fact that he, he comes in as a random element that was not planned for. So whereas the system can be flexible as long as the people in the, the boardrooms and on the, on the trading floors have confidence in the people that are in the government and around it, that they are people of that machine and they're going to run it in a way that they can is safe and predictable and that the flows of capital and of course the flows of labor um, into the united states and britain and other places to keep labor costs low carry on then the debt can be serviced and the confidence in the system is kept relatively high and things roll on as normal now trump's a random element not because he had some great plan to undo any of this but because he comes in with the support of the the slightly lesser end of the ruling class in the in the United States. He comes in with a mass base of um, working class and poorer petty bourgeoisie who have been on the losing end of what the process commonly referred to as globalization. And that's a random, unpredictable element. He also has a base of support which has not been built through the traditional parties in the United States. Again, that's a random element. And it's a random element that the system does not like. It's the same way that um, Corbyn had a mass base, Sanders had a mass base, both of whom sacrificed <coughs> them completely. And therefore, the random element is what the system can't take because the system is brittle in terms of if the, if the flow of capital gets interrupted at any point, that's when you see a massive contraction because suddenly everybody stops lending. And this is what happened in 2008. Suddenly the confidence collapsed, everybody stopped lending to each other, and then suddenly the whole system shook. And Trump, if he'd been more serious and went yeah. uh, went all in on his yeah. trade war with China, he did kind of, but it didn't really affect mm -hmm. Chinese growth. There was still an awful lot of trade and profitability made between the US and China. And but the mere fact that he was there as a threat was what animated the, the the hostility. The fact that he was a random element who was unpredictable and could interrupt that capital flow by some crazy action or another, or the fact that he woke up in the middle of the night and started a Twitter war with mm. Xi Jinping. These things sound trivial, mm -hmm. but they're not when you consider it in the, yeah. in the terms of the system needs predictability. The random element who is based on yeah. class forces that are not entirely controlled by the political elite, that's a threat. And that, I think, is the material basis for where the hostility comes from. 
Okay, this is brilliant stuff. Like I, I think this is you've really come up to a, a key insight here, and I think, I think this um, realization that um, you know profitability is so low, and um, the only way to that capitalists can bring it back up is through these, like, is through through a a return to like this primitive form of, of accumulation and a return to exploitation to further to increasing the ex, the exploitation of um of absolute surplus value, and I think I think that yeah like any resistance to that <coughs> because workers don't it's a lot easier for workers to resist a. Um, exploitate like an extension of the working day yes right than it is for them to resist a productivity technology mm. right so i i think to add to your analysis like i i think that the system has to be so um has to exclude any form of dissent at all any mm. any of it because um it knows uh that the 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 fierce response that it will get from the working class um, you know, as as it extends the working day, like I think so far they've been able to get away from it because it's been able to layer on so many layers of ideology. So, so much, you know, I think the part of the reason why workers have not really, we haven't really seen a lot of class struggle during this pandemic as they've been shifted away from like, you know, maybe um, from 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 job from like into jobs that are more precarious and 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 um, you know, you know, kind of like kind of worse kind of quote quality jobs is because um you know a lot of these workers were coming from the small business sector which already has um you know l- low wages and no benefits and is and is quite precarious because there's so much churn in the small business sector so for them to go from like that to maybe something that's more akin to like a temporary contract or like a gig work or whatever that isn't like a huge material change for mm-hmm. them first of all um but second of all, there's been so much ideology uh, layered on to the working class since the start of neoliberalism about like, you know, personal responsibility, entrepreneurship, blah, 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 blah. So I think, though, like capital, I yeah, I kind of see in addition to what you're saying, capital is becoming, you know, it, it, it's trying to forestall the like any resistance to its move to expand the rate of absolute value surplus value exploitation. So, um, and, 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 you know, I, I think that like it maybe saw the glimmers of perhaps a working class movement in Corbyn and Sanders, even in Trump, for instance, and it just, it could not take it. Like it was like, no, we're not, we're not, we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna deal with this. And so it shut it down immediately. And I think another element that, we can maybe add to this is the fact that yeah like the superstructure right now is 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 heavily based on fictitious capital yes. right like a fictitious capital generation and so the the cultural and political expression of that is um yeah like it lacks it's not dynamic it's not the people who are produced are are quite stupid like um you know the propaganda that's produced is ridiculous yes. um yeah, and it, and it just like consistently <coughs> across countries, the types of propaganda that's been deployed in terms of COVID-19 in terms of other things has been like identical, despite the fact that countries and peoples are quite different in many ways. Like Canada is very different than the UK, like the people of Canada, right? Like the working mm. class of Canada has cultural and linguistic and 
other different, you know, other differences. And yet the propaganda is exactly the same from the United States to Canada to the UK. It's all the same. And it's just because um, I think that all of these, all of the advanced capitalist nations are, the superstructures are based on this base that is, that is, you know, that is like kind of swelled with fictitious capital, which, you know, is, is, is not, it's not productive activity, right? So it, it, yeah, I think it produces this like, this weird cultural postmodern expression, which is like, yeah, which is, it seems very odd. It seems like so unmoored from reality because it is in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah, the, the foundation are, the foundation is not solid. And therefore, when, when the, if you look at it in terms of the, the foundation for modern capitalism is so precarious and the returns on investment are so yeah. low and they're not even willing to use mm -hmm. their own money quite a lot of the time to actually invest, then this is the foundation for unstable and fundamentally um, rotten institutions. And this is what we see in the response to Trump. The response to Trump in political mm. terms in the United States is insane. It would not be something that, the, <laughs> that a <laughs> rational... A, a confident capitalist class would actually engage in for a start the you know if there was a confident and um fully in control capitalist class then the, a trump figure would never have gotten near the republican party nomination in the first place now you know it would have he would have been a joker who would have been a flash in the pan and gone out like you know uh, he might have won one state like old, old uh, reverend pat robertson did in the late 80s uh, but the fact that you had this guy who was crowdsourcing his slogans and wandering around and seeing what works and suddenly hit upon this this package mm. um, tells you that, first of all, you know, if he can recognize it, many other people could recognize it. But the fact that he was able to package that up into something that was able to win an election also that made a lot of the ruling class go, or the ruling class politicians, I should say, lose their minds because these are people who have been brought up on the myth of 1989 that it's all over, that mass politics is over, mm. that um, mass movements are over. Mm. I mean, I remember, just to digress into a, a story that um, would illustrate this point, I attended for my both my undergraduate and my master's the University of Birmingham in Britain, which is a place which is basically Blairite mm -hmm. ground zero for the, those who went there. A lot of them went on to become like big names in the special advisor group that served in the Labour Party in the early 2010s. A lot of them were in and around the Ed Miliband leadership. Some of them uh, rebranded and became Corbynites later on, then became Starmer supporters. But I remember a conversation with one of them. Um, we were talking about voter turnout levels. And I said to him that, well, doesn't it concern you? Because he says to me, well, you know, my, my ambition is to be <laughs> just like um, Alistair Campbell or Peter Mandelson. And after I, you know, picked myself out of the off the floor, I said, well, doesn't it concern you that like more less and less people are voting? Doesn't it concern you that um, more and more people just don't see any difference between the parties? And he says to me, no, that's a good thing. That's what we want. We don't want <laughs> mass voter turnouts. We don't want mass parties. We don't want mass involvement because that means things are being things are unstable again stability means mm. um, a relatively low turnout where if he said he they would be happy with around about 60 percent 
and also um, that the and Blair said this over and over again as well that, that people just don't want to be bothered with politics they want to know that the the adults are in charge that the professionals are running things and this is what I was saying earlier about this is a generation of people who've been brought up to see politics as just um, marketing and technocratic governance mm -hmm. so a Trump mm -hmm. figure offends that so I've already we've already chronicled like how he mm. poses how he was seen to perce uh, perceive to be proposing a risk to capital accumulation and certainly the modern forms of capital accumulation but he was also uh, profoundly offensive to two generations of political operatives and their cultural reflections in the mass media who had grown up on the myth of technocracy and I you know I mentioned this to you in a message yesterday that you know uh, it's also reflects down to alleged comedy like you know the John Stewart era daily show uh, being the criticism the comedic criticism of George Bush was never that he was this monstrous imperialist bastard it was that he was dumb and that you know the Bill Ma the old Bill Maher routines like oh, oh president dumb dumb that kind of thing which that, it's ridiculous <laughs> but it's reflects it's reflective of a the culture reflects the material reality and the, the ludicrous shit comedy does reflect a material reality which is the the ideal form that they were they were uh, aspiring after was the competent technocrat who just makes the occasional tweak to the system and keeps the machine running and the you know, shitty comedy re reflects that material reality in the economy which is what the economy uh, which the the economic picture of the moment desires is the return of the trusted people who will know how to keep the capital flows flowing and that's that that's the the hysterical hostility to trump from the the political media and cultural classes is rooted in that idea that they, this can't happen this literally should not happen we can't deal with this mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think this is it. Like, I think this explains a, and I I think um, <clears throat> I think that the I think also the other part of this is the yeah, the lack of working class yes. struggle. Um, it creates this like this cultural expression that is entirely petty bourgeois and mm. bourgeois. Right. And. I think that, you know, we're seeing like these weird reruns of of past themes resurging, you know, like the the racialist themes that we're seeing yes. in the United States come back up. Um, we're seeing, you know, replays of things on gender, replays of, of past battles that have already been that were won decades yeah. ago. And yet they're 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 coming back, they're they're kind of trying to replay these battles. So I think that the, the, because the reason is that the bourgeoisie is a dead end class. It, it can no longer create anything new. Um, and so all it can do is run these, these, these bourgeois yeah. reruns. And so like, I think like for working people like, you know, um, like us and whatever. And like, we're seeing this and we're being like, we're, we're just thinking, you know, this seems ridiculous. Like this seems completely absurd like we you know racism for instance isn't a big issue in anymore like it, it, I'm sure it exists of course because we live under capitalism but it's not the main thing that people are worrying mm. about um but the reason why it's only like we only see it played out on the cultural and political like that kind of these kind of themes play out on the cultural and political 
uh, stage is because um, there is no working class expression on that stage yes. anymore. It's it's devoid of yeah. So it's it's devoid of that, and it's devoid of anything that could give it, um, you know, that could that that, that could give it uh, kind of like some fresh blood, you know, like something novel, innovative. Um, and I think that really is reflective of the type of intellectuals and the type of um, politicians that are produced. Like they're so stupid, mm. um, they're so uncharismatic, you know. They're they're just kind of like marketing like they're just like a a, a marking like a, a computer generated marketing um tool yes. and i i think that's very much reflective of the fact that the 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 working class who is the 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 universal class the one that can move history forward is just been completely defeated and there's just no class struggle to generate something that would be to, to generate newness to generate like to generate like innovation to generate like you know, like like capitalists have stopped in, uh, investing into productivity technologies because they're not seeing profit returns, and so now we're seeing a descent, the the decadence of science and technology mm. as well, right? Because there's no class struggle to push them to do so. Yeah, there's no uh, the energy in the system is dried, and they're returning to these crude forms of of surplus. Uh, exactly, yeah, it's dried up, and so we're seeing like I've been playing with this idea that like you know, um, this this like what your idea that like the system is so fragile that it can no longer tolerate even a small amount of dissent. And also the idea that this is accompanied by such a low level of class struggle that we're going to be seeing like a, a 21st century fasci fascism, fascism, but without the productive base. Mm. Right. And without the working class struggle. And so it's going to be like a fascism that lacks um, you know, the, uh, the interesting charismatic characters of the previous iteration and the clean aesthetics and all of the, you know, it, it's just like, it's going to be like AOC, <laughs> a bunch of AOCs, um, just people who are very like vapid and like, you know, just like replaying old kind of, uh, themes from like past eras that just have no relevance to today at all. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm kind of playing around with right now. Yeah. I think <laughs> it's worth emphasizing as well, just how much the, the lack of class struggle has impacted upon the, the, the Trump era. And this is, this affects everybody mm -hmm. who's been produced every political figure who was elevated by the events of 2015 to 16. Um, the, the, in British terms, the level of class struggle still remains, remains incredibly low. And this was this crippled the the Corbyn movement because it meant that there was no working class organized working class content to it. What there was was a layer of radicalized petty bourgeoisie, and what you get there is all the yes. weaknesses that come mm -hmm. with that. Now Marx observed um, all the way back in the late eighteen forties with the rise of uh, Louis Bonaparte, who is sort of. Louis Bonaparte, the nephew of Napoleon, became Napoleon III, is credited with being a progenitor to certain fascist movements in the 20th century. Um, but what Marx observed about how he was able to come to power was that the, the Social Democratic Party, um, known as the Mountain, was crippled with indecision and bouncing between being influenced by the the working class and the ruling class because it was a movement of the petty bourgeoisie and the petty bourgeoisie uh, does not have an independent political existence under capitalism what it has is it's a it's a essentially bounces between being 
dragged along by the ruling class forces and dragged along behind working class forces. And when there's no working class force present, even when the petty bourgeoisie gets radicalized, what happens is it just ends up folding to the ruling class whenever any pressure is exerted upon it, without that counterbalance of the working class strength. And that's exactly what happens with the Corbyn movement. It completely hmm. gets wrecked by Brexit because the petty bourgeoisie in Britain has a both a material and an obviously an ideological interest in uh, the maintenance of ties with the European Union, reflecting, of, the, of course, the fact that they are uh, just dragged along behind the ruling class who overwhelmingly wanted to stay in the EU. And you get Corbyn becoming inc- an increasingly ridiculous figure, uh, becoming more and more of a petty bourgeois leftist to the point where most of the working class turn their back on him. And then you get the same with Sanders in the United States. You get the the complete colonization and the hollowing out of his movement by the petty bourgeois left in the United States <coughs> that ultimately drove it into a ditch. And then, of course, re- reflective also of all the political weaknesses of Sanders himself. The Trump thing is interesting, though, because Trump had a movement that's been made up of certainly by no means the organized working class, the disorganized working class elements of the middle class. But unlike the other two, Mm -hmm. um, he did take some care to preserve it, even if he never really organized it. So he goes and he does these mass rallies, which always caused the bourgeois Mm -hmm. media to have an extended meltdown and the left to claim it was, uh, you know, Nuremberg (laughs) times a book burning times the KKK times the March on Rome times the Beer Hall Putsch times Caesar feeding Christians to the lions, all of that. But of course, because of course what he was doing was he's keeping a base that is not subject, that, that was loyal to him, personally loyal to him, which is something that the... The ruling mm. class really wanted to sever, and I think eventually they have severed it via the events at the Capitol building the other day. But mm. again, it all comes back to the fact that they can't, yes. the system cannot take an, a random element. And I think that's the that that's mm. it. And, but it, it, if there had have been suddenly the eruption in the last few years of mass working class struggle in the United States, the hostility to Trump would still have been there because he would have been affected by it as much as all the other ruling class figures would have been affected by it. But he would have seen a very... They would not have taken the same degree of political risks to destroy him had there been a significant layer of working class... significant amount of working class struggle in the way that was absent. So the, the working class as, as, a, as an active struggling class on a mass basis would have changed everything. The work at the ruling class would have prioritized absolutely smashing and destroying that rather than engaging in a, a faction fight with a, mm. a, with a the losing end of the American ruling class, the one that isn't heavily invested in investments outside of the US, which is what the the Democratic parties the Democratic Party aligned bourgeoisie uh, a lot of them are heavily invested in uh, overseas markets, which is why they didn't like Trump and his protectionist measures very much. And so Trump is that sort of combination of the the lesser end of the bourgeoisie, the petty bourgeoisie, and the the large sections of the working class who have been impoverished by deindustrialization. And all of those figures were meant to be relegated out of politics, never to return. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay, do you want to make some predictions? 
I feel like we've <laughs> yeah we've we, covered we, the. Do you want to add anything on the Trump on the Trump phenomenon? <laughs> well. No, I think, I, as I said earlier, I think your analysis is a few days ahead of mine. I, I'm still, what you were saying, I'm still, you know, wrapping my, I, I think, I think your key insight that the system just simply cannot take any dissent at all um, has, you know, because of the material base, the changes in the material base. Um, I think that's, a, that's the key insight. And I think it really explains all of the cultural and political and the COVID mm. response that we've seen. Um, in this, in in the last few months, um, and yeah, it does explain the very like aggressive response to Donald Trump, despite the fact that he really was never a threat, uh, you know, a major threat to capital. Um, and maybe in previous eras, capital could have um, did, um, in fact, um, tolerate some um, diversity of of thought and character within its ranks. But now it's coming to a point, I think, where we're going to be seeing the party like the parties of, of uh, advanced capitalist nations become more and more similar amongst one another where, you know, in Canada, for instance, there's there's little to no... That's why I think we've seen little to no difference amongst all of the parties in Canada, for instance, in their in their take on COVID-19 and what mm. to do. The Conservatives are asking... are You know, all of them are pro-lockdown at, at their yes. base. The left flank is just asking for more welfare and stricter lockdowns. And the right flank is just asking for more uh, small business supports. And the ruling the ruling party right now, the liberals, are just are doing yeah. both. Right. But there, there's no there's no difference in 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 kind. Right. It, it's just a, it, um, it's just a difference in 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 tenor. Right. Yeah. So I think that's what we're going to be seeing happen in the United States as well. And I think that's what we're seeing, like with this move from the left flank of the uh, Democratic Party to expel um, people who don't wear masks or who just for frivolous reasons, they want to expel these type of right wing type characters from Congress like Hawley, because um, I think they just really need like complete, um, complete consistency in the ranks in terms of view of outlook and of, of approach, because capital is is so fragile right now in terms like it, it just cannot take any any foreign yeah. kind of you know, like, yeah, it just cannot, yeah, it just cannot take it. Like it's so, it needs to pursue this, this, um, this, 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 the strategy of absolute surplus, um, exploitation expansion. And it knows like from history that working class resistance to that will be much fiercer to than what it is to, you know, to, to the increasing rate, increasing the rate of exploitation through technology. So I think that that's that kind of explains why we're seeing this, yeah. and <coughs> like very well, like yeah, this the, insight. The focus on getting rid of like the likes of Hawley, who again is no threat to no who is no intention no. in on his part of being a threat to capitalism whatsoever. However, the fact that he has become he and others who have defied the uh, the ele the supposed election results in the United States have become a focus for being expelled. It reflects the fact that the mm -hmm. even the tiniest diversion towards kind of like nationalistic protectionism of the kind that Trump ran on in 2016, even the palest reflection of that has to be mm. rel relentlessly purged to the point where mm. um, they are, what they're trying to do now is they're trying to make sure that the... Um, Republican Party is returned to being its pre-Trump state, which is essentially 
You're breaking up a bit oh, there, Alex. Can you hear me better now? <coughs> Is that better? Hello. Hello. I can hear you now, yeah, but I missed the All last right. few, so I was, like the I last was 20 seconds of what you said. What they're trying to do is to restore the Republican Party to its pre-Trump state, which is that the um, the Christian the, the Christian right can have uh, their yes. can have their mm. you know irrelevant corner uh, shouting and screaming about social issues to the point where they become ever more marginalized, and but at the, and then but anybody who makes a movement towards a play for working class votes even in the crudest way possible even in the most limited way possible that has to be driven out and that's essentially what the mm. the AOCs of the world are doing they are driving out anybody who makes the slightest nod towards a pro a, a pro worker mm. position and even if that's a complete milquetoast position mm. And again, that's not a reflection of the fact that um, she's mm. some sort of diabolical genius. It's She's reflecting the material base of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And that's why yes. we are where we yes, are. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So do we want to get into predictions then? Um, we Where we gaze into the future and try, try to work out where things are going. So um, do you want to go first on this? Yeah. Well, it's always a risky thing to do to make predictions, obviously. But um, I'm feeling, I'm fe- I've been feeling really dialectical lately, <laughs> and so I've got some predictions to share. So do you fucking a lot of people on Twitter, um, in my personal life as well, have been. Pardon me. Do you, Do you fucking love dialectics? Are you breaking Is that up? What you're saying. I I fucking love dialectics. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I, I feel like it's just, um, you know, I, at least for me, I'm still a learner. Um, you're more advanced. You you were on this COVID thing early. So I think that your your predictions, I, I'm interested in hearing yours because I think they're going to be more closer to the mark than mine. But um, yeah, like when you when you do it, it's uh, it, it's really something you can really I, I mean, I don't know. I, I think this is going to sound really dumb, but like I feel like it can kind of see into the future not too far not too far into the future but just a little a few months ahead and it's interesting because you're i see the left and i see the unions and they're so behind in their analysis and i'm like oh you guys are going to be left behind on the wrong side of history anyways yeah again (laughs) nothing new there Mm. um so yeah um i've been seeing a lot of uh stuff come out uh so so okay so to to preface this the reason why i wanted to do this is because I think that a lot of people are very nervous about the future. Um, I think a lot of people are very anxious that, you know, the lockdowns will never end or, you know, they want to know where masking is going to go. They're scared that there will be draconian um, kind of, that there will continue to be draconian impositions upon their civil liberties. Like, so, you know, people have asked me whether I think that things like COVID passports will become something. So here's what I think will happen. Um, I think that now that uh, Joe Biden, uh, the inauguration is coming, Joe Biden's power is secured, I think that we will see quite quickly a move away from the massive lockdowns. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that, at least in Canada and um, perhaps some parts in the United States, I don't think that the state has the the capacity to vaccinate everyone as quickly as they would like to reopen everything. And so what I've been seeing, for instance, Statistics Canada, let me just pull up this thing so I can be accurate. Um, It's done something quite incredible. Um, One second. 
I was going through all my bookmarked okay. notes here. Uh, okay, well, anyways, it's fine. Um, I don't need to be that accurate, but essentially they've sent every, they're sending a large portion of the population a at-home uh, test so that they can, that people can prick their own finger and send back Statistics Canada a sample of their blood. And they're trying to assess the amount of, um, of COVID-19 antigens in the population. So basically, I think what they're going to do, is, I don't even know if they're actually going to process these tests. I don't think that this is a scientific or appropriate way of doing this kind of thing. But I think it's just a cover for them so that they can claim that herd immunity has been reached and yeah. start opening things up before the vaccination is done. I don't think the vaccination effort is going to finish. Um, in Canada, it's been 30 days. We've only vaccinated 1% of the population. I do not think it's going to happen. Um, I think more so there's been a lot of concerning data, especially at the second dose coming out of um, Israel and also United States. I'm not saying that for most people, the vaccine isn't safe. I think it is broadly safe for most people. But I think that like for a vaccine, right, it's not so much that you don't want any bad things to happen as a result of taking the vaccine. You just want the benefit of it to be more than the cost. And the fact of yes. the matter is that the COVID-19 is not dangerous to most people. And so if they're finding that, you know, the 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 cost is non-zero, um, they're going, I think they're going to, you know, kind of slow things. And, and we're seeing in the provinces, a lot of the provinces like start to, um, you know, they're, they're pausing on the second dose for some reason. And I think the reason is because they're seeing some adverse outcomes and they, they're, they're getting a little nervous. So my prediction is within, right. I think, it's hard to say exactly a timeline, um, but I, I think that by March, things should be broadly open. Um, I think that there will be a little bit still of, of work from home as the professionals make up the left flank and they've been the most lockdown hysterical of them. But um, I think broadly speaking, restaurants and everything will be open. I don't think that things like COVID-19 passports will become something um, like major. Um, I, I don't think anyone should worry, should worry about that. I don't think that capitalism is going to put limitations on people's ability to travel any further um, because it has no interest in doing that at all um, past the kind of the political cover that it offered. Yes. Um, another thing is, yeah. So what, I, just to, to kind of finish off um, and pass it to you. Um, so in Canada, we've been seeing a little bit of dissent break through the ranks. So for very recently, just a couple of days ago, um, a conservative MP was MPP. So a member of provincial parliament in Ontario was um, kicked out of caucus because he wrote a letter stating that the lockdowns are doing more harm than good. Um, so the fact that this letter has been produced and it's been um, publicized is a sign that things are moving away like that. It, I think that is basically the future line that will become dominant, right? That the lockdowns are no longer, they're not helpful. Um, they shouldn't be done. Um, the IFR is very low, meaning that the, the death rate of this disease is very low um, and we should just stop doing them. So I think that's going to be the line adopted by the bourgeoisie moving forward. And I think we're going to see that fairly soon, like within the next couple months yeah well what do you think? i'll i'll mainly focus on britain but i think I'll, I'll i'll throw in a couple of the u.s things as well so for in british terms i'll sure yeah i'll i think ours will reflect what you said which is that they are already saying uh well we're ramping up the vaccination rates they're talking about opening around the clock vaccination centers in some areas they're bringing in the military <coughs> to assist with it they're going to say that they've got enough vaccination coverage and plus the herd immunity, because now the story is saying that London's at herd immunity, having previously denied that that would be 
either mm. possible or desirable. Um, <laughs> what will happen is several dif- several different things are going to happen here almost at once. They will declare victory over the disease of the virus in probably by March at the latest. Uh, the lockdowns will be dropped. Keir Starmer mm. will suddenly mm. forget that he was in favour of more drastic lockdowns and say that we need to reopen again. Um, he is a man blessed with that great quality of politicians, which is the memory of a goldfish. And he <laughs> he will do, say, oh, we need to reopen now. We need to get the economy back on track. Boris himself has been damaged by this with the Conservative Party voting base which is, even though it's expanded into certain working-class seats, it's still very much dependent upon uh, the petty bourgeoisie and small business class. They've been hit quite hard by this. So I think if we see significantly more numbers of bankruptcies, then that the heat's going to be turned on Conservative MPs in a way which it already is turning. I think Boris will probably step mm. aside voluntarily and he'll be replaced by the Chancellor. Mm. Uh, this guy Rishi Sunak, who's a mm. former Deutsche Bank employee, senior level banker, here he's connected very well both uh, in Europe and the United States. Uh, he doesn't carry with him the baggage of the Cameron years, or there's not there's not much known about him in terms of his position <coughs> on Brexit, other than he's been a loyal uh, foot soldier for Boris Johnson's <coughs> position. So he is positioning himself to be the next leader. He's, uh, if you look at where he's come from in terms of his place in the Conservative Party, he's very much from the sort of David Cameron, George Osborne school. Um, he's associated with various sort of what you would refer to as free market think tanks like the uh, Centre for Policy Studies in the UK. Various Conservatives who were aligned with him go and speak there. The perspective of that wing of the Conservative Party is that they, I mean, for instance, Sunak has spoken out in Cabinet against further lockdowns. He brought in alternative experts to argue with Boris Johnson about them. He has not said anything publicly nor hinted at resignation because he's got his eyes on the big job. Um, But he clearly is an advocate Mm. for reopening. He clearly wants to um, follow, but re-follow the economic policies of the Osborne Cameron (coughs) years, which is to a certain extent, they would uh, do austerity to a degree in certain areas of the public sector, a contractions of spending. He'll look to continue some of the things which we talked about earlier in terms of the public sector shedding long-term liabilities to employees. That's been standard practice for quite a while now. In fact, that's been standard practice since mm-hmm. at least the, the early new Labour period, which is the late 90s. But he's going to be the back-to-normal face. He's going to be the face of the government which says, right, Boris, you did Brexit, you beat the virus, time for you to go, mate. And then he'll step aside and soon that will take over and the, the, the drive will be back to work and the drive will be um, towards the, the more gigification of working. So now we've got more people who've been put out mm. of work, especially in the hospitality sector. They'll be they'll be pushed into if they weren't in gig economy jobs already, they'll certainly be pushed into them, and that'll be the growth area um, of the of the of the of the working age population that is pushed into it. And then you'll see an expansion further of um, things like logistics and delivery, which have expanded dramatically within the last year anyway, and. You'll see the the small business churn will continue. There'll be more 
probably more bankruptcies until things are stabilized and spending goes up again. But it's, it's worth emphasizing that in certain areas of the country, uh, quite a lot of support has been given by the Tory government to small business to, to cushion the impact on them. You're still seeing more bankruptcies than usual, but again, it's not the apocalypse that some predicted. So, yeah, yeah generally a return mm -hmm. to the longer term trends of the British capitalist economy, which are uh, relatively low degrees of growth, uh, continual attempts by the capitalists to suppress wages uh, in by you know usage of uh, technology being used as a threat to keep wage demands low, uh, gig economy working being used to keep work insecure. And essentially, it's the same long-term plan British capitalism has been working off since 1965, which is continually pushed towards the most you know cruder form of exploitation as you can get away with, whilst at the same time making sure that there is a section of the middle class which is kept with its income seeming to grow slightly just to keep enough support on board for the system in terms of the the middle class not falling completely into the working class or into the lumpen proletariat. That would be their plan overall, which is sort of back to what they were doing anyway. Whether they can do that or not is another question. That depends upon, is there a wider crash coming out of COVID? Is there trouble within mm, the eurozone yeah, mm -hmm. now there there stands the potential for a lot of trouble within the eurozone because macron the darling of like the neoliberals in europe has been in trouble almost since he was inaugurated he's not a popular politician he's not a popular leader the continued membership of the eu is no longer popular in france the you saw the yellow vest movement mm. which kind of went nowhere in the end it was involved in continual street fights with the police every weekend for a year, but it never advanced politically. You're probably going to see an evolution of that. Um, there'll be more strikes because the French working class has held out for much longer in terms of its wages and terms and conditions of work being protected than, than Britain has. They haven't suffered the defeat, the massive psychological impact of a defeat that we did in the mid-80s. So Macron is subject to a great deal of instability. Um, Italy also great deal of instability the, there's now this um, small business resistance to lockdowns that's kicked off with all the led by the Italian restaurateurs the government's just collapsed because the minority party pulled out um, Berlusconi may attempt a, new, a comeback when he's been given a new heart who knows either way more instability there and again greater um, greater hostility towards continued EU membership because Italians have been getting poorer and the EU has been trying to impose uh, greater and harsher neoliberal terms on their economy. So potential also for more instability in the east of Europe with the, the Polish ruling class split on the, <coughs> their continued relationship with the EU. There's a lot of tension between the Polish ruling class and the Germans for both economic and also for historical reasons. Um, the German position is going to get more unstable. Merkel's now going. She's got this successor who's this sort of fairly bland career politician from Bavaria um, who will probably try to continue the sort of generally neoliberal progress that she's made, but in a sort of quiet, low-key fashion. Whether that's going to be possible, again, depends upon resistance within the, the working class of Germany. Um, wherever you look across Europe, there's there's more and more signals that we are in for 
economic instability. A lot of the economy, even the bigger economies, haven't recovered. Germany shows growth, but France has still got long-term problems that the French ruling class are trying to solve by crushing the working class. So far, they've not quite got what they want. Either way, we come out of this into the roughly uh, the same picture that we came into it with, but with COVID having exacerbated certain things, like there's not going to be much take-up for the, the vaccines in France because people just don't trust Macron. He's that hated that the 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 level of trust in the vaccine is only around about at forty percent, according to the last polls. So that's a problem. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, that's a low. problem because he's so mm. despised. It's actually discrediting anything that he mm. attaches himself to. So all these are going to be significant problems going forward, and it's not. I don't think the British ruler Clinton class are going to be able to return to what they wanted, which is just a return to the pre. Um, 2020 period where they increased the pressure on working class wages and the, the deterioration of working conditions. To finish off with a trip over the ocean to the United States, um, the <laughs> the level of insanity pumping out of the US ruling class now, I think, has started to surprise me. Like, putting 25,000 soldiers <laughs> in the capital of the nation for the inauguration <laughs> is an insane move because if even just the cursory research i've done shows that the the what was done in the capital storming which was going on just before we spoke last time that's the limit to what trump was prepared and capable of delivering the and even that was looks like mm. it was filled with fbi agents and agents provocateurs anyway to think that he would mm. be capable or would desire to mount some kind of mass invasion of the capital by, like, I don't know, the cast of a Mad Max movie is what they seem to have convinced themselves that is going to happen. That's insane. And it doesn't, as you were saying, this doesn't it reflect the confident, a ruling class that is confident. If it's having to install a walking yeah. dementia case as president under mm -hmm. armed guard of 25,000 men, that's enough to invade a small country. That does not strike me as being a ruling class which is particularly either at ease with itself or confident or able to impose its will. Because if you, you would have thought mm. that if the narrative that the Democrats and that the ruling class was presenting was reflective of a reality, that there, there is this great relief that the Trumpist nightmare has been vanquished, the demon has been killed, uh, we will drive him out, you would think that they would want a show of strength of some kind that they were confident in going forward. Occupying the capital, flooding mm. it with soldiers, locking it down, that looks like the desperate manoeuvre of a fading regime. To me. That doesn't look <coughs> like a ruling class that's confident and in charge of the situation at all. Mm. Because you would think that coming mm. out of this, they want to show we've vanquished the Trumpists, we're in charge, here, look at us, look at the united colours of Benetton capitalism, mm. this is America as it should be. Mm. Not taking place behind a, behind a you know some kind of gigantic tank trap mechanism. So, yeah, that's... But is, it, is that because it's paranoid or... I, I don't know. Do you? Because I I interpret that not so much as the fact that they're they're forestalling an actual threat. Oh no, they're threat. not. They, they've just. I, think, they, they, I, yeah, I should have made it's, this clear. It's a reflection of the instability within the ruling class that they that they have made this decision reflects a lack of mm. confidence in themselves. 
so that whether they mean to look this they this way or not is another question but it does not reflect a, mm. a, a political confidence in their ability to um their ability to govern the system there is not a genuine expectation i don't think other than like some of the madder elements of the democrats mm. that the trumpite hordes are going to descend upon the capital mm. that's not going to happen but again mm. the action that they're taking shows a a, a level of uh, it shows a lack of belief in their own abilities i think the fact that they need this huge military presence speaks to a lack of confidence yeah, but like a lack of confidence. I mean, wouldn't I? I just I find that maybe it lacks more. It, it reflects more a a paranoia that's settled. You know, coming back to my point about the difficulties of expanding absent yeah. surplus exploitation. Yeah, I think I think that they are a little paranoid with what's to come. Like I think they are. I think that like in their like, I don't know. I I interpret that as a as a baseless fear because there is no class struggle right now or very little class struggle. But I think, I think that the bourgeoisie is kind of anticipating resistance and like, and I, you know, to your point, you know, the fact that a little bit was produced with the Sanders and the Trump phenomenon, like, and because they are so fragile, it's created this sense of paranoia within their ranks. And I think that's what this military presence at the inaugura- inauguration really reflects, like this paranoia. Yeah, I think I agree. I agree with that. I probably wasn't expressing my prediction very well there because I think that that's right. Oh, I, I might have just yeah, misunderstood but, you. <laughs> um, I think that it, you, you, just to pick up on something you said there, the it may reflect mm. a fear of the future in that there is a knowledge on some level within them that they are going to have to carry Mm. out significant attacks on wages and terms and conditions. And that that they are almost anticipating that. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Like, I think that's what I kind of sense Mm. from it. Like, that's what I... these, These preemptive, like, you know censorship is always done i think it's always a preemptive move you know what i mean like it's it's always anticipating that a conversation may lead to something Mm. you know what i mean um so so yeah that's the sense that i get um and i think that they're right i think that we well maybe they're not i don't know i how do you see the the state of class struggle evolving over the next few years um this is uh It's going to be it's just a big question. Um, <laughs> the million dollar yeah, question. Huh? Um, <laughs> I think the I think what the, the the purpose and the mission of the ruling class is still the same as it was as I was saying. Mm. Um, they need to re- they, there is a need from their class's perspective to reduce to level down wages uh, to level down the cost of employing people. And they will use various different tools to achieve that. They'll use the threat of automation. They'll use the threat of um, high tech to bludgeon wages down as far as they can. But as all the data shows mm. from bourgeois sources that are reliable because they're they are to a degree because they are relied upon by serious investors, so World Bank, IMF, yes. etc. That mm. data is used by serious yes. people, not you know idiots in Parliament. Mm. Um, <laughs> but the the they can't escape the long term fall in profitability. They can't 
get around the problem that so much that there's these gigantic debt bubbles in the system that need constant servicing or will explode. They can't get around the fact mm. that so much of the capital they are sitting on is fictitious capital which has been generated and just pumped in yeah. by central banks. And the central banks keep having to do mm. that over and over and over again. I mean, if you look at the the multiple rounds of quantitative easing that was carried out between 2010 and 2014 by the Cameron government, it was gigantic from the Bank of England. And again, there's been no strong return to um, to product to product really productive capitalist behaviour since then. We've just continued on the same track. So the question is when, when, but not if the uh, class contradictions mm. explode. And I can mm. predict that slightly better here. I think that there's going to be. There's going to be more public sector strikes here, but they're not really a threat. The public sector here can't lead, or anywhere, can't really lead a working class struggle. The There'll be some mm-hmm. big problems potentially on the railways because um, the railway the railways now are essentially nationalised. The government is paying for all of it, even though we still have nominally private companies running them. The government may attempt mm-hmm. to cut the budgets and retrench, so you may see significant rail strikes, which always cause problems in this country. Um, if there, the the transportation sector is very big in this country, so there's been um, a consistent level of struggle in logistics and delivery companies in recent years. We may see more of that, but really, I think the the places where you may see an eruption of mass class struggle isn't necessarily Britain at first. Um, you'll probably see it Mm. in France or Italy where the working class movements have survived Mm. more intact. If Macron goes on the attack, which he probably will, and he's been doing so relentlessly, then that Mm. will see the emergence of a class struggle on a mass basis. And in a time when the political situation in France and wider Europe has become more unstable, these things can spread very quickly. So if, say, the French working class Mm. can show that they can land a blow on Macron that knocks him out, then the inspiration Mm. to the Italians, who are in a similar but slightly worse economic position, will be huge. And the Italian government's already collapsed, Mm. so there's no one there to knock out. But the situation being so Mm. unstable is uh, an open door to more class struggle. The the political problem, in in my view, is that as things stand... You can have all the you can have significant amounts of class struggle, but if all that does is re-energize or temporarily re-energize like zombie social democratic parties or zombie so-called communist parties, then that struggle is going to peter out and go nowhere. At the moment, the British yeah. and European working classes yeah. do not have a political option mm-hmm. to turn to, and that's a big problem yeah. in the fact that. All this revival, everything since 2010 has been basically a petty bourgeois politics. doesn't matter whether it's Syriza, Podemos, uh, Sanders, Corbyn, or even Trump. It's all been animated by the the politics of the petty bourgeoisie. We do not have Mm. a genuinely working class political force, and nor do we have a core of... um, a serious core of Marxists that can create something. At the moment, as we've, I hope we've demonstrated mm. to those listening to this, that they, and we'll 
do more in future episodes, that those who have been analysing this, from the, even from the Marxist perspective, have been hopelessly and cluelessly wrong. And that sh- sh- speaks yeah. to a deep Incredibly problem wrong. In, the, yeah. in, in Marxists in the West, which has been there for a long time. The point, I'm, the reason why I'm making this point is that without the old, the old Leninist problem remains. Without a, um, without or the, the the problem that Lenin poses to us remains, which is that without the Revolutionary Party, without the Leninist political orientation, then everything else that has been tried in the West, and God knows a lot of things and formulations have been tried since the Second World War, all of those formulations which involved hash-up alliances with the section of the bourgeois class, hashed-up alliances with the petty bourgeoisie, um, radical reformism, Mm -hmm. various forms of Trotskyism, various forms of pseudo-syndicalism, have all just pancaked completely Mm -hmm. into the reality Mm -hmm. of the shrinking rate of profit. And we are we have to face the reality which is when you have a situation where the rate of profit is continually shrinking and the ability of capital to make reforms is disappearing or make reforms in a way that can still guarantee profit which was the uniqueness of the post-war period well then we are faced with a situation where we have a, a proletariat and bourgeoisie facing each other and then neither neither can afford to make a concession and unless we yeah. politically orientate around that essential truth, we're going to keep failing. And that, that's the end mm-hmm. of my, uh, my my predictive capabilities for the moment. Yeah, no, yeah. Like, um, I'm not even close to there yet. But, yeah, I mean... <coughs> yeah, I, I think... I think on the short term, I mean, at least what I can see is... Um, yeah, I don't see a big reset, and like, a, you know, at least in Canada, I mean, Canada has never really been, um, for various reasons, like it, it's kind of stuck in a resource trap, kind of second world, it, it, like orientation in terms of politics, um, despite the fact that it is an advanced capitalist nation. So it's always, I find that it's always created a bit of an anemic politics, um that's always kind of a little behind everyone else um so it takes its direction a lot from um the united states which is its major Mm. trading partner um but yeah i mean i guess in the short term yes i do think that we'll see for instance a like i guess in terms of the effects on on every people's everyday everyday lives like I, i think that we'll see a a continuing reduction in freedom of speech um, more censorship, these kinds of things, as capital is is more and more going to struggle to contain the contradictions. Um, I think that though, I don't, I maybe I can get your view on this. I don't think that um, something like a Chinese style or supposed Chinese style level of authoritarianism is is possible under capitalism, not only because capitalism needs some degree of freedom of movement in order to, to maintain free labor that it can take and, and dispose of as it's as it needs, uh, but also because the institutions in Canada and in the United States are just so bureaucratic and so, um, you know, like bad that they, they could just never manage something on that scale. Like they just they just don't have the the 
the intelligence and the capability of no. doing so. Um, so. So I don't think people need to worry about that too much. Um, I think obviously the big worry for me is the austerity that's coming. Um, and um, yeah, like the 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 attack on wages and living conditions which is part and parcel of living under capitalism but i think the austerity will be quite bad i do think that i don't know if the healthcare system will survive um like it definitely will be will be fundamentally changed after the next few years of austerity that's coming um i mean in canada for instance i'm pretty sure the liberals will win um a majority um as i told you before that they there's rumors they're going to trigger an election in spring because they're currently a minority government I think that they have done a centrist job. Uh, there's their centrist job well enough that they're pleasing enough of they can cobble together a coalition of of both sides of the p- petty bourgeoisie to get reelected into parliament with a majority. And I think they're going to carry out a, um, a very harsh regime of austerity to make up for what was actually predominantly payments towards small business, but they're going to claim it's it's in order to make up for the welfare payments that they made to people. That brings us to the end of this week's episode, but there'll be more on this in the weeks to come. I hope you've enjoyed this and found this enlightening so far. And the only thing that's left up for me to say is, here's some very appropriate ending music. Capital, it fails us now.